0: We're in the book of Acts, we've moved all the way quickly to chapter 16. We've left the ministry of Peter, which occupies about the first half of the book, and now we're into the ministry of Saint Paul, which occupies the second half of the book of Acts. It's interesting as you notice over and over and over, you'll see parallels. You'll see that Peter preached and Paul preached. You'll see that Peter healed a lame man, Paul healed a lame man. Peter had a vision, Paul had a vision. You see this over and over, and in Peter we learned about an open door. When the Lord opened the door and Peter and John walked out of prison, and went back to the temple and began to preach. And here today we have the story of a door that the Lord opened. And this is the conversion story of the Philippian jailer. But um, there's two other conversions I'm going to make reference to. One is the reason that Paul and Silas are in trouble is because they had cast out a demonic spirit from a soothsayer, a young slave girl, and had aggravated her masters because they had lost the income from her divinations and the practice that she had. And she had been delivered from the satanic obsession that she had. Then, before that, there was a woman who was at the river with other women having a prayer meeting, and Paul and Silas came to their prayer meeting and they were converted. And in that particular thing, it wasn't a dramatic conversion of exorcism where a devil was cast out, but it was, the Bible says this woman's name was Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to believe. And this is the third dramatic, significant conversion story. Let me read the entire story for you and hopefully we'll. We'll be able to endure till the end, (laughs) beginning in verse 20. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, Ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, the jailer put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these things to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who were Roman citizens They encouraged them and departed. The Word of the Lord. You may be seated. The most important part of this particular story, dramatic as it is and filled with incredible detail, are verses 30 and 31. Then the jailer brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I think it could be that he was concerned about his own personal safety. But the answer that Paul and Silas gave was the answer for eternal security. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Paul and Silas have continued on their journey, their second missionary journey, gone up through Asia Minor and all the way into Bithynia. Paul had a vision in Troas. He saw a Macedonian man saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And they took a short two or three day boat ride and they ended up in the port city just outside of Philippi. They're now in what we know today as Europe. The gospel has left Asia and has now moved to Europe. We're seeing the expansion of the gospel around the world here in these brief chapters of the book of Acts. They've come to the city of Philippi. Philippi is a Roman colony, which meant that everybody in that town were... Roman citizens by birth, if they were born there. A Roman colony had a special status in the ancient imperial world. It was usually a military center. But one of the most significant things is that its government, the government of the city, was arranged exactly like the government of the city of Rome itself. They were governed by praetors or magistrates. There were two of them that governed the city, and the the administration, the municipal administration of the city of Rome was considered to be a wonder of the ancient world. The way Rome was divided and the way it was administered and ruled over. And a set of rules applied to the citizens of the city of Rome and of other colonies, Roman colonies, that were superior to the rules that applied to Roman citizens throughout the empire. And this was the status that Paul enjoyed. Paul was a Roman citizen. And here he was in a Roman colony. And if there was anything in the world that Paul and Silas should not have had happen to them, was what happened. They were brought before the magistrates of Philippi because they had interfered with the income of the masters of the slave girl the young soothsayer. Paul got in trouble and brought before city magistrates twice in his career that we know of. And both times it had something to do with money. In Ephesus, it had to do with the silversmiths and their profitability from idle manufacture. Now Paul's in trouble. He's before the magistrates and before any judicial proceeding took place, the magistrates of this Roman colony reacting to the mob and to the furor of the moment, immediately had Paul and Silas beaten. Now you're familiar with the the symbol of that authority. It was an axe wrapped in a bundle of rods. It's the fascist. It's the symbol of Mussolini's fascist government in the 30s in Italy. It represented by the axe, it represented capital punishment, the decapitation, which eventually befell Paul himself. The rods that wrapped around that were the Rods that the lictors used to beat someone, representing corporal punishment and discipline. A Roman citizen had a right to not be harassed by religious propagandists of any illicit religion. Did you catch that? In other words, they didn't have to listen to any preacher... Our propagandist, or persuader of any religion that was not recognized as a licit religion in Rome. So Paul and Silas had definitely violated that law. And they were due a fair hearing. But instead they were beaten, thrown into jail, put in stocks in the inner part of the prison to prevent any kind of escape, And they were locked there. And the second paragraph of the story begins to tell us that about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I don't think I would be singing hymns. I think I would be moaning, cursing, Complaining, especially if I had the notion of, I can't wait to let them know I'm a Roman citizen, because this jailer, those lictors, and those two praetors are going to be in prison when I get through with them. I know my rights. But Paul and Silas knew the law above the law, they knew the sovereign above the emperor. And they were singing and praising God. Two ancient examples come to mind. One is the example, they say, of Socrates, who composed poems and tunes while in prison. <laughs> it takes a noble and a mind to do that. But even apocryphal tradition tells us that Joseph when he was in prison in Egypt, wrongly accused, sang and praised the Lord and prayed and testified to the people there. Paul and Silas were about in the worst place they could be. And yet they conducted an informal worship service. That's why Paul can turn around and write back to this Philippian church in the book of Philippians years later, rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. And in everything, give thanks. And he goes on and on and on because he had been there, done that. Is our perspective and our disposition, and is, are we made of the stuff as Christians that we can praise the Lord in any circumstance of life? That's a tall order. That's tough to do. But it's an indicator that we've begun to move our lives and our perspective to a heavenly perspective. We know ultimates. We know finality. We know priorities. And that's the condition that Paul and Silas were in spiritually. Now physically they were kind of beaten up. And they were constrained and they were in pain. But spiritually, they were what we would call a camp on a mountaintop. They had started a church in that Roman colony. And it started with two women, a young demon-possessed slave girl that God delivered, and a Christian businesswoman whose heart the Lord had opened, and Lydia's household, her husband, children, all those that were connected to this particular enterprise that Lydia had. Male nor female, bond nor free, rich nor poor, none are excluded from the kingdom of God and the gospel. It is for everyone. I think one of the worst feelings of grief that I feel is when I hear someone say, or I hear it on the news that Christianity is a white man's religion. Christianity belongs to all God's children. (laughs) The whole, any tribe, any tongue, any nation, any gender. Any socioeconomic status. The gospel goes wide to the world. and We must always remember that. Paul and Silas are in pretty bad shape. Then the Lord sends an earthquake, shakes the prison, opens the doors, and now's their chance to escape. And everybody else that's in there. But somehow, and I don't know how, but somehow they were managed to be persuaded to stay. And Paul and Silas stayed, and the jailer, expecting them to have been gone, ran in in great distress. It says, the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Why would he do something like that? Well, because that's the charge that he had. It's either these prisoners, security in their life, or yours. And Paul said, don't harm yourself. We're here. Paul knew the circumstances. He knew what he was in distress about. And he called for a light and he came out in this jailer, this Roman jailer, who probably was a man of some distinction, a retired military officer quite often. He had the charge of these prisoners. He came out and he said, "What, what do I do? What must I do? to be delivered, to be saved from this horrible situation. He might have even had in the back of his mind what is my hope? What is my salvation? Ancient history tells us that the pagans, almost every pagan religion had some kind of prayer for salvation some kind of incantation, some kind of prayer, some kind of pleading to whatever deities there might be, whatever idols or whatever gods they might suppose. There was always a a notion deep within their soul that the gods would save them and that they needed rescuing. The jailer's visceral instinct may have been just that simple or it could have been Already, the saving work of grace had begun to stir his heart and he knew his need for a Savior. And he knew these men were gospel preachers because that was the message that the slave girl had been taunting them with. She had been running up and down the streets preceding Paul and Silas. Everywhere they went, they stayed there for several days. Several Sabbaths. And this slave girl had been saying this. Let me see what, uh, if I can find the exact quote of what they, what they were saying uh, to uh, the people. I loved it. She was the best gospel preacher I've heard in a long time. Yeah, this, this is what the slave girl had been saying. They followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you, the way of salvation. (laughs) And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And He came out that very hour. Wasn't anything wrong with the message she preached. Perhaps the charge had come and the jailer knew it. And he knew these men were men who were the servants of the Most High God. And He knew these were men that proclaimed the way of salvation. And so, the most important question, what must I do to be saved? Have you asked yourself that question? We we have to quiz ourselves from time to time. And this is the most important question. What must I do to be saved? And there are multiple answers to that question, but I ignore them all this morning to point you to the true one. And that is, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. That's simple. Believe. It's faith. It's trust. It's not works. It's not trying to accumulate merit. It's not trying to reform your life and clean up your act. It's not turning over a new leaf and resolving to do better. It's not hoping that you're okay because you're just as well off as everybody else. And if God's going to condemn you, He's got to condemn everybody because we'd all be in the same boat. And God's not going to do anything like that. He's just too good a God to condemn everybody. So I'm kind of above average. I'm going to make it. You're not above average. When it comes to spiritual matters, you're in the same boat with the rest of us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in the same place. The law demands that there be perfect obedience to the law of God. Perpetual obedience. Every day of your life till the day you die. Perfect obedience. Perpetual obedience. And personal obedience. It's not what your grandfather did. It's not the church you're in. It's not the group you hang around with. It's your own personal obedience. Salvation and faith and obedience. Having required all of that, the flesh cannot deliver it. In our humanity, we cannot deliver it because we are in a sinful condition. We were born into that condition into which Adam fell. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And death passed upon everyone, all mankind, for all sinned. So we have to ask our question, what must we do to be saved? And the answer is believe in God's provision for salvation. That is Jesus Christ. God has provided Him to be the law keeper that you are not. God has provided Him to suffer the penalty that your sin deserves. And so He's covered it from both sides. God is just and the justifier of those that come to Christ by faith, by belief. Now the conversion here is magnificent. It says, you and your household. Paul never was content to have the gospel go to one person. He wanted to move it along the line to someone else. You notice that? Over and over and over. He would come to the synagogue and he would then he would move to the Gentiles. And here he preached the gospel briefly to the jailer, but he went to his house. And notice what happened there as we close. I, I just... I just found so many things in this particular part of the episode that I just wanted to point out a couple of them. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. That's Paul and Silas preaching to the household of the jailer. Now the household went beyond probably his wife and children. It went to servants. It might have gone to men who were under him in rank. And who knows what other group, kind of like Cornelius we saw recently, who was a Roman officer. And there's a tremendous group to hear the Gospel preached. And notice this. Jailer got some water. And the first task with that water was to bathe the wounds. The whelps and the lacerations that the lectors and their rods had put upon the back of Paul and Silas. He washed their wounds. But there was another washing that took place that was far more important. The jailer was baptized. The water and the washing of the wounds was important. It was mercy. It was balm. It was soothing. It was healing. But the washing of the baptism told the story of the purging of the blood of Christ. The washing of the water, the flow of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of God upon the life now of the jailer. Marvelously converted. Have you noticed in almost every one of these conversion stories that we've been looking at this year in the book of Acts from, from Pentecost on? And there are others in here we've skipped. They've all involved baptism. Water baptism is that which is expected of a new believer. Someone who has put their faith and trust in Christ and had believed, and notice what it says, then he brought them into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. He had come to God the Father, the Creator of heaven and earth, by the only way, the only path, the only road, the only gate, the only door. And that is through Jesus Christ. He had believed in Jesus Christ and had therefore believed in God. Hadn't Jesus told His disciples, do you believe in God? Believe also in Me. Hadn't He said, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. The response to the question, what must I do to be saved, was believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. And when He did, He believed in God. People often give believers and Christians a hard time saying, Well, there's God, but there's got to be more ways to God than through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself is the one that tried to tell us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And by the way, the Christians in the book of Acts were called earlier the way. Later on, they were called the life because they had answered the question aright. Believe in Jesus and thou shalt be saved. I can never read this passage without thinking of my little brother. <laughs> he passed away eight years ago of cancer at the age of 57. But I remember when he was about five, six years old, seven, something like that. Little boy, he came in tears to my mother, to our mother, and wanted to know, what must I do to be saved? And my mother answered him, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And my brother believed and counted it as his conversion, his testimony was that one simple little verse. And he hung on to that. And I was with him in his dying days and I was by his bedside when he drew his last breath. And on his deathbed, he wrote hymns and choruses. We published them. We've passed them out. We've used them. They're inspirational. At his lowest time, he praised the Lord and sang. That's what a real conversion will do for you. It'll save you, rescue you, deliver you, redeem you, wash you, cleanse you, make you what you ought to be, put new life within you, raise you from spiritual death, and he'll put a song in your heart. The power of God when we're brought low.